It's Monday, June 20th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, would you use your own pee in your garden or donate it to a local farm? Some folks around the world see that as the future of fertilization. Plus, some scientists want to rename summer Danger Season. And astronomers have discovered a new multi-planet system not too far away from us with two Earth-sized rocky planets. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Reduce, reuse, and pee cycle? That's the motto of more and more people around the world who are using human urine as a fertilizer, particularly as chemical fertilizer becomes harder and harder to come by due to the supply chain shortage and the war in Ukraine. As farmers and gardeners will know, fertilizers contain three fundamental nutrients. Nitrogen to help increase yield, phosphorus to aid in maturation, and potassium to keep the plants strong and resilient. Urine has all three in abundance. Solid waste from humans does too, but not as much as urine, and it can contain significantly more pathogens. The Rich Earth Institute, which leads a urine collection treatment and awareness program in Vermont, notes that adults produce between 100 to 150 gallons of urine each year. That urine has 9 pounds of nitrogen and 0.8 pounds of phosphorus. If all of it were to be used to fertilize grain, you'd have enough wheat to make a loaf of bread every single day of the year. They write, quote, Urine diversion is the practice of keeping human urine separate from the rest of the wastewater stream. Urine contains most of the plant nutrients found in human waste. Separation of urine at the source keeps these nutrients from causing water pollution and allows them to be used as an agricultural resource. For millennia, people around the world have been collecting their urine to fertilize plants. While this is already a common practice in many communities, there is a new movement growing to incorporate urine reclamation into infrastructural design, end quote. Some people do indeed use their own urine in their own gardens. All you have to do is keep it sealed in an airtight container at 68 degrees Fahrenheit or warmer for six months, and then apply it like you would any other fertilizer. And the World Health Organization actually fully supports this practice so long as the food being grown is only consumed by the same household members contributing the urine. Otherwise, it needs to be sanitized. Sanitization and use of urine as fertilizer on a larger scale is where that infrastructural design comes in. The Rich Earth Institute has been pioneering this in Vermont, where they collect donations from around the area and take them to a treatment center to be sanitized via pasteurization, and then they deliver the sanitized urine fertilizer back out to local farms, in a truck with a vanity plate reading, P4 Farms. Pea cycling is not just a thing that some folks in Vermont have gotten into, though. Apart from being a known practice for millennia, like I said, it's also being done in various ways around the world right now. One program in Niger saw a 30% increase in crop yield after they began implementing collected and pasteurized urine as a fertilizer. 
and it's doing more than helping the plants. The New York Times notes that according to the EPA, toilets are the largest source of water use inside homes, and chemical fertilizer requires fossil fuels to be produced. Quoting from the Times, the commercial production of ammonia, which is mainly used for fertilizer, uses fossil fuels in two ways. First, as the source of hydrogen, which is needed for the chemical process that converts nitrogen from the air into ammonia, and second, as fuel to generate the intense heat required. By one estimate, ammonia manufacturing contributes 1-2% to of global carbon dioxide emissions. Phosphorus, another key nutrient, is mined from rock with an ever-dwindling supply. End quote. And both chemical fertilizer and urine can leak into rivers, lakes, and coastal waters due to leaking septic tanks and outdated wastewater infrastructure, says the Times. And while some urine is good for plants, too much in the water system can overload it, and the runoff from the chemical fertilizer can cause algal blooms that eventually lead to mass die-offs from plants and animals. So using less chemical fertilizer and flushing our toilets less often by using our urine to nurture plants is really a win-win-win-win. We just have to get over the gross-out factor first. And in terms of large-scale rollout, storage and transportation are both tough, since urine is mostly water. But a number of institutions, including the Rich Earth Institute in partnership with the University of Michigan, are working on various possible solutions that include concentration, evaporation, reverse osmosis, and more. Now, this is a little different, but the first time I knowingly used a compost toilet was at a state park a few years ago. At the time, I hadn't even heard of this concept, but signs in that particular bathroom helpfully explained what made their facilities unique and how it all works. And apparently, compost toilets of some form or fashion have been in use in some state and national parks since the 1970s, so I probably had used one before, and you may have too. Composting toilets are not the same thing as urine-diverting toilets, or the humble jugs and funnels often used for people donating their urine to larger projects like the Rich Earth Institutes. Compost toilets often look close to a normal toilet or sometimes resemble more of an outhouse situation, and they are more for solid waste than liquid. In fact, most of them have a reservoir for the liquid that has to be emptied regularly because getting everything else to compost correctly requires just the right amount of moisture. Although compost is kind of a misnomer. People disagree on how much the waste is actually being turned into usable compost by the work of microbes. The one certainty is that it requires a lot of specific know-how and maintenance to do it correctly. And there turns out to be quite a bit more to this whole field than I realized, so I'll have to leave further investigations into all sides of the composting toilet debate for another day, but I will say anecdotally that when I first discovered these, I did think to myself that it could be a glimpse into the future. You know, I often think about aspects of my everyday life that could be different a few decades from now, either by terrible necessity or by choice because we as a society finally implemented more sustainable policies. But some form of a bathroom situation that uses less water and actually helps the environment certainly seems to fit the bill. A urine-diverting toilet might end up being more popular than composting toilets. They're being used by some more serious pee cyclers, and The Guardian notes that Paris is installing them in 600 new apartments, with the urine collected being used to fertilize green spaces in the city. It does seem like composting toilets and the larger rollout of pea cycling both have a ways to go, but we might be hearing more about them in the years to come.
Remember earlier this month when I told you about the scientists who want to start naming heat waves the same way that we do hurricanes? Well, another group of scientists wants to rename the entire summer season, and their suggestion? Danger season. The suggestion comes from the Union of Concerned Scientists, and wouldn't seek to actually replace the word summer altogether. In fact, the danger season period would run longer, from May to October, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Instead, the scientists say they wanted a new phrase to reframe how people view the risks and threats associated with this period of time each year. And those threats, as I'm sure you're aware, include higher-than-usual wildfire activity increasingly chaotic hurricanes, extended periods of drought, record-breaking heat waves, and more. Christy Dahl, a climate scientist from the Union of Concerned Scientists, says that many of the deaths from those phenomena, especially heat waves, are preventable, with more awareness and resources dedicated to them. So perhaps the reframe of danger season will get people talking and get governments taking more action. Quoting from Wired, Part of the thinking behind using the phrase danger season is to make it harder for people to sugarcoat the climate crisis. I just want to say straight up, frankly, 10, 15 years ago, when we would talk about these things, we didn't want to scare people, said Rachel Cletus, a policy director at the Union of Concerned Scientists. We wanted people to understand the science and really be invited into understanding the implications. And now we're scared. We're terrified for what we have unleashed onto the world. Edward Maybach, the director of George Mason's Center for Climate Change Communication, said that danger season struck him as a useful framing to help people realize they need to prepare for recurring disasters instead of reacting to them. Knowing that danger seasons are getting longer will hopefully help people, businesses, and governments recognize the need to take actions now to protect the things they value and depend on, Maybach wrote in an email to Grist, end quote. Now, you may be thinking, there are plenty of climate disasters that happen outside of this danger season. Snowstorms, particularly ones happening more often in places without the infrastructure for them. Floods and mudslides. Tornado season is even a little earlier than the proposed May start date of danger season. But this group of scientists say that danger season is when threats and disasters are more likely to compound on top of each other. Dahl gave the example of hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico that have recently knocked out power and water supply right as people need them even more desperately to combat the heat waves. Having a name for something can help build awareness and funnel funding towards it. Of course, we already have a name for summer, but it's one that evokes fun activities, leisure time, a welcome break from the harsh winter in some places. Summer is often viewed through rose-colored glasses and celebrated as a time of rest and recreation. The Union of Concerned Scientists want us to remember that it's also deadly increasingly so. And with a hardcore name to remind us of that, maybe we'll push for more policy-based solutions to protect people during this time. But on that serious note, I will leave with a little bit more of a lighthearted factoid, the etymology of the word summer. From Wired, quote, Summer has remained mostly the same for a millennium or more. Around the year 900, old English speakers were already using the word sumor, S-U-M-O-R, for the warmer months. And some say the word summer is probably close to the version heard 4,000 years ago, when people spoke the prehistoric Indo-European language believed to be the ancestor to many languages spoken across Europe and India today. End quote. So, danger season will have a lot of catching up to do.
Astronomers have discovered one of the closest multi-planet systems to our own solar system, and it houses two terrestrial Earth-sized planets. The center of the system, which is 33 light-years, or 10 parsecs, away from our Earth, is a small M-dwarf star called HD 260655. That star is bright enough, and the whole system is close enough, that astronomers are excited about how closely they'll be able to assess the properties of those two Earth-sized planets, including investigating four signs of atmosphere on either or both of them. Though I should say, before I go any further, that as exciting as the idea of rocky planets the same size as us and not too far away from us is, they're not thought to be habitable. They orbit fairly close to their star, which makes them too hot to sustain liquid surface water, according to MIT News. Surface water, though. Michelle Kunimoto, one of the lead discoverers, says that looking for signs of water or carbon-based species is definitely on the agenda. The discovery was presented last week at the American Astronomical Society in California and was led by Kunimoto along with others from MIT and collaborators from around the world. The system was initially identified by NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, which is an MIT-led mission, and it was later confirmed using archival data on HD 260255 from the High Resolution Shell Spectrometer, or HiRes, and an independent survey by an instrument called CarMeans. Using all of that data, quoting MIT News, they determined that the inner planet, dubbed HD 260655b, orbits the star every 2.8 days and is about 1.2 times as big as the Earth. The second outer planet, HD 260655c, orbits every 5.7 days and is 1.5 times as big as the Earth. From the radial velocity data from Hi-Rez and Carmines, the researchers were able to calculate the planet's mass, which is directly tied to the amplitude by which each planet tugs on its star. They found the inner planet is about twice as massive as the Earth, while the outer planet is about three Earth masses. From their size and mass, the team estimated each planet's density. The inner smaller planet is slightly denser than the Earth, while the outer larger planet is a bit less dense. Both planets, based on their density, are likely terrestrial, or rocky in composition. The researchers also estimate, based on their short orbits, that the surface of the inner planet is a roasting 710 kelvins, or 818 degrees Fahrenheit, while the outer planet is around 560 kelvin, or about 548 degrees Fahrenheit, end quote. So yeah, pretty toasty probably too toasty for life forms. But the team says there could be other planets in the system that they haven't spotted yet. Astronomer Avi Borer told MIT News that many multi-planet systems have five or six planets, so from an optimistic perspective, there could still be one lurking in the habitable zone. Never say never. All right, well, that's going to be it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.